Hello there. Um, thank you for listening to 25 and Not Famous. This is our final episode of this kind of pilot season, um, of which I'm so grateful for all the guests who agreed to be part of this kind of idea and test it out with us and see how it worked. And today, um, the guest is my good friend from uni, Will, who has just started a really incredible and so deserved job in politics. Um, And it's just really, it was so exciting to talk to him about that and about how he feels like his life has and hasn't led up to that before now and what he might see for himself next. Um, Yeah, it was a really fun conversation and it was the first interview that we recorded. And just to kind of round off all these little introductions, I wanted to talk about something I've been thinking about loads over the last week, particularly to do with making the podcast, which is the idea of focusing on good enough instead of best or obviously perfect. I know that perfectionism gets a really bad rep as the worst humble brag out there. Um, and the most annoying job interview answer. It's definitely something that I I have trouble with. And I think that it doesn't actually mean that you make perfect things. It means that you don't make or do the things that you really want to because your standards are so high and your fear is so great that it cancels out your ability to actually even do something in the first place and the horrible (laughs) truth to I mean I don't know about every other area but I'm pretty sure every area of life is if you want to get good at something you have to probably start off being bad or at least worse than where you're going to end up and yeah I came home and had one week before I go off to travel for three and a half months, which I'm literally doing in, I think my train back to London for my flight is in four hours. And here I am recording this, not fully packed. And I had a lot of stuff to do over the last week. I also was doing some part-time freelance work and trying to see all the family and friends that I wanted to see before I go and to say bye. And the podcast wasn't even nearly done. I had done four out of the six interviews. I had done none of the intros. Really pulling back the curtain on how this is made here. And I didn't know if I should just kind of give up on it or spend loads of time on it when I get back and release them all much later on. Or if I should just kind of try my best to go for it and accept that there is a limit to what that can be which is what I ended up going for because I think that you have to make bad things to get better or imperfect things and when what you want to do has an audience I believe that it's not finished being made until it's put in front of that audience I don't think that if you want to be a playwright it really counts if you just theorise and write and write and you never have anyone actually see and respond to your theatre, like theatre is meant to have an audience, podcasts are meant to have listeners, I don't think I'm going to miraculously 
get better at presenting if I don't believe that people are genuinely gonna listen to this and react to it and I'm gonna have to take on the feedback and improve that way and also prove to yourself that it's maybe not as scary in practice as you might imagine it to be when you haven't put anything out there so while I don't necessarily feel like you know I'm great at podcast hosting or a great interviewer I've listened back to a couple of the earlier episodes that have been brilliantly edited by producer Greg and I have so much criticism of my own interviewing and presenting and you know when I listen back to these intros I just want to record them about 200 times and completely script myself but that's not what I'm aiming for like I want to be able to grow in confidence and again to do that you just have to put yourself out there and I think most importantly I really enjoyed doing them and so that has value of nothing else like the the interviews themselves I find the interviewees answers so interesting I feel like I learned so much in the episode today you know I might not feel like I did an amazing job of interviewing or you know some of the stuff I said I might find so cringe and be like why does my voice sound like that why did I make that joke like why am I interrupting etc etc but in the moment I learned so much from that interview and from what Will was saying and I'm going to put it out there for that if for nothing else so I've kind of tried to set for myself uh, almost like a resolution of leaning into getting things to good enough and lowering the bar for good enough away from this unreachable idea of perfection which just means that you're never actually going to make anything and therefore you're never going to end up getting better. So with all that said and with me essentially trashing <laughs> this podcast, well only my role in it, I hope that you haven't turned off and gone to listen to, you know, fucking Anything Goes by Emma Chamberlain, although that's a great podcast, and maybe do listen to that after this. Yeah, I hope you're still here, and I really hope that you enjoy this final episode. Um, Let's get into it. Hello, (laughs) officially, to the recording. Hello. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on on, like, literally the hottest week of the year. I really appreciate it. Not just because I get some shoulder action and also get to serve some shoulder action on this video. Um, Yeah, so we have known each other quite a long time. And the first thing that I'm going to ask everyone who comes on the podcast is what they were doing the moment that they turned 20 years old. We were obviously already friends when you turned 20. We made friends the first year of university, became really, really, really close and then obviously fucked off to Russia Um, So that was great. And I then had to make new friends, which was its own story. Um, And uh, I'm pretty shit at dates, but I'm pretty sure this might set off the podcast on a terrible note, but I'm pretty sure your birthday, I want to say it's the 29th or it's the 27th. Is it the 29th? 29th? I've hedged my bets because I actually have that of November. (laughs) I got them. Obviously, I know the month. Only dicks don't know the month. So I know that you turned 20 in Russia on November 29th. Do you remember what was happening 
on that date like how did you kind of celebrate what was going on in your life like how do you how do you remember turning 20 basically um what was weird about the day is that I mean, it was just a standard day that I had in Russia went to uh, the university that I was studying at uh, early in the morning the babushka that I was living with at the time had said oh I'll treat you to a your favorite dinner in the evening if you want we had these <laughs> hor- well, not horrible but they're called pelmeni which is like a little kind of a bit I was like gonna say is that your favorite dinner but it was a funny day it was because it was also the birthday of one of the teachers I studied with at uni um called Olga and she was uh she's just the most classically Russian woman you could meet she's very stern, uh, very cold um, on the yeah. on the face of it. But then also she's incredibly warm and emotional and mm. personable. Um, and I think her very strange mix of political views also reflect that side of her where she's, you know, on the one hand, she's massively pro-Putin. Mm. But on the other hand, she's had a really, really tough time in her life. And, you know, she feels like she's been given a raw deal. And, yeah, she was a really interesting person. But we celebrated um, because someone uh, else in our Russian group had made us matching flower crowns. That's so sweet. We got a really cute picture of the two of us uh, on our birthday with our flower crowns. It was a funny oh, day, really. birthday is like a big deal um, to you, like, in general. Um, not, not really, I, I don't think. I I don't, I know there are some people who have their months-long countdown for their birthday and then a two-week countdown and mm. then birthday week celebrations, and I'm not like that at all. I don't really get a sense of impending dread that I'm ageing um, on my mm. birthday. I think it that just happens yeah. all year round. <laughs> so no, <laughs> no major change. Um, no, I don't think I feel it in particular on my birthday. I think also because my birthday is really mm. near to Christmas, um, I feel like no one's really paying much attention to birthdays at that yeah. point in the year. Um, and they're just getting ready for <laughs> whenever Christmas comes. And I'm yeah, happy to get Was that. it weird being <laughs> far away from so many of your like closest relationships for that birthday? It was strange. Um, I know my mum had sent me a package of Aww. things. Um, sent me classic we're gonna get on to the jumpers don't even worry about it (laughs) we'll get on to the jumpers I'm sure everyone who's lived abroad for at least a period will understand but there is a you do feel weirdly Mm. British when you're out there sometimes Um, and it's quite nice to have just little reminders of home Um, yeah a few people have sent me stuff and it was it was so exciting to actually have something Mm. to open because I just thought why would someone send something all yeah. the way out, hundreds, thousands of miles away, when they could, in this day and age, yeah, just totally. send a text? Um, so it was nice to have that kind of contact with people, even though I knew I was going to be back in the country, back home yeah. within a month anyway. But, you'd, you'd hadn't been out yeah. there that long, though, by November, because obviously you did like a full year. Did you go out in September, mm. October time? Yeah. Did you feel that September, you were already... Yeah. Like, did you feel quite submerged already? Because I guess you all changed quite a lot. Like, it was a very sudden thing to, like, you'd only just started learning the language mm. a year before, and then you were just yeah. living there. 
did you feel that this is a really big thing to be doing with my life right now as I'm turning 20 or was it just kind of all still new and that significance hadn't like come yet? I think what I found particularly what really struck me is how I'd never been to a new place like that before. I lived uh, when I when I grew up I lived just on the outskirts of Oxford. I went to uni there or in first year I I knew where everything was. I'd never really ventured outside that area before. I'd never lived anywhere else Um, and I think whereas everyone else had had a year's practice because the previous year they probably moved mm. from another part of the country or another country yeah. to Oxford for the year. Um, they were all a bit more used to living in a new place, a new city, a new country. Um, and I was not used to that. And I got really caught mm. out. I didn't know where anything was. I couldn't find my bearings. Um, I didn't know where to go and get basic supplies moving to a, an entirely new place, I think just totally threw me off. So it took me a good few months to adjust to that, probably longer than most other people. But yeah, I did I did see it as a really important part of my life, but I don't think I fully grasped mm. it at that stage. I think it was more after Christmas where I started to, you know, I'd been home for a couple of weeks over the Christmas period, and then I came back to Russia at the start of January and I had another three or four months there and I think that's when I started to really kind of reassess Mm. things um in my life and the you know I just I think I kind of threw caution to the wind really and just thought this is a once in a lifetime chance I really want to make yeah I think that's amazing and it kind of makes sense because I mean there's going out of your comfort zone and then there's (laughs) having been in your comfort zone your whole life and moving to Russia for a year which is like really leaping out of your comfort zone and it probably takes a while for that to have an effect like you say for the first few months you're literally just dealing with the fact that you're uncomfortable and only after you've got used Mm. to being uncomfortable can you like reap the benefits of it but you studied (laughs) French and beginner's Russian which was just a really fucking random thing to study and like everyone who studied beginner's Russian kind of had that same thing of like I don't really know why I'm doing this, but it just seemed like a fun thing to do. Like studying something for university that you've never learnt before and it's a language. I mean, I studied English, which is a language I literally already spoke. And you didn't really know what you were going to do with those subjects the whole time through your year abroad, through when I was in third year and you had sort of, you went to France that year for a bit. Um, And now Mm. your career path, you are absolutely smashing it. You're the comms officer for a MP that we love (laughs) who we won't be naming but who is a great MP to be comms officer for um and you've just since uni been working in jobs that you've loved and had this amazing trajectory so I just want to know what happened between those two moments and when was it and how was it that you worked out that this was kind of the path that you were going to be going on yeah it's funny because I've thought about this before and I've looked at the profiles of other people that I studied mm. languages at uni with and I see what they're doing with themselves now and they've all gone on mm. to do amazing things already um but what's so interesting is that 
pretty much all of them, without exception, are using their languages that they studied or new languages in their job, everyday life, or they've moved to those countries. Um, and I definitely feel like an exception in that I have left all of that behind. I have forgotten pretty much everything I learned um, and I don't use it at all. <laughs> um, so if there was ever a degree which is more useless, I guess you could say it's mine <laughs> in the pure academic sense. But I did really enjoy learning how to communicate yeah. effectively, to communicate in a way that people who are not like you can mm. still understand. I think my sense was that a lot of other degrees, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, teach you how to communicate to other mm. academics, basically. Um, and there's certainly a bit of that in languages, especially when we're doing stuff on old French poems or whatever. But I think there's a real element to learning languages where you're having to communicate in a way that it's not about you getting across. It's not about you saying what you want to say. It's about you saying something in a way that other people will understand. Um, and I think that really resonated with me. I, I, quite, I really like the idea of trying to bridge a divide between where you personally stand on something mm. and where someone else who disagrees with you or where someone else who comes from a very different perspective or a different mm. background. And yeah, I think that was the main thing that I learned from my degree and what I took out of it and just wanted to use in whatever field of work I yeah, went into. And that is literally, I think that's really interesting because what you're describing is something that I think a lot of people get from going to university in the way that we were just speaking about from being outside of their comfort zone rather than from their degree. I mean, I definitely didn't learn that from my degree at all. <laughs> I learned how to mm. write clearly, which is my cheetah's favourite motto, and I suggested that you get mm. it as a tattoo. But um, <laughs> write clearly for academics, you're totally right. And actually for me, I was talking to a friend about this last night who also went to uni with us, that I turned up in Oxford and no one understood what I was saying no one was laughing at any of my jokes and no one wanted to get with me on nights out and I just <laughs> couldn't I was baffled I felt so out of place and I was just like I can't understand how nothing I'm saying is translating and so it was a bit like a social study of being like okay who are these people what intonation do they need in a joke to laugh at it like mm. what but who's getting with who and why just like understanding all these kind of things in a much more like social context yeah and just seeing people from so many different walks of life I mean you know there's still at the end of the day it's a posh uni with yeah. a load of posh people in it but I think it teaches you how to communicate to people who are mm -hmm. different to you um uh, because if you're living in Russia you know people are so different to you in so many ways like not even thinking about the language. So if you can speak to them in a way that they understand and you can build some kind of rapport, I think that's really valuable and it teaches you how to then, if you then come back to this country, which I did, how to communicate to other people who mm -hmm. are nothing like you, all the divisions um, that we have. For you, is that why it's um, politics? Yeah. Because that's like the 
medium that everyone's kind of speaking through? Like, is it politics, the thing that you wanted to work in with these comms? Like, how did you know it was going to be politics? Yeah, Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, I've always been interested in politics, but I think for quite a while I felt like it was actually an inaccessible career for Mm -hmm. someone like me. I don't know why I thought that, but I think I, I just assumed that so many people in politics are like sort of dead set on that that's what their career is going to be from the age of 10. Um, and they want nothing else from life and they probably study politics at uni and they've been campaigning on the streets for years mm-hmm. beforehand. And I didn't feel like that. I, you know, I'd done bits and bobs of things um, and I was certainly interested in it and had a lot of knowledge, but I didn't think that necessarily translated as this is a career I want to go into. Um, but even now, I, even though the, the job that I have is very political and I'm, I work in Westminster and I, I'm surrounded by politicians and journalists all the time, I wouldn't say my job is necessarily political. I think it's still a communications mm. job. Um, my job is to communicate the messages, the messages of the politician I work for. It's not to necessarily think mm. strategically from a political side about how can we gain more seats yeah. in Westminster of communicating yeah. with people. I think that's such an important distinction to be made that it doesn't always have to be strategic. And I think that's really the way that we think about politics. And probably we need more people who are thinking thoughtfully and thinking sideways instead of thinking, what's the race to the top? Um, have you mm. ever wanted to be famous? No, I don't think so. And actually, since I've moved to this job that I'm in now, which I've been in a few months, <laughs> this is the, the closest I would say I've ever got mm. to fame because I'm surrounded by a lot of uh, famous people. I work for a semi-famous mm. person. Um, I, you know, I... I'm on WhatsApp chats with these people and I will sometimes meet them for coffee, etc. And I see the kind of the scrutiny that these pe- these more famous people face and I know that I could not handle it. Yeah. Uh, I think you need a, a willingness to put yourself out there um, and to take risks for yourself uh, in a way that I think I'm far too reluctant to do. I just don't, I think I would mm. buckle under that pressure to be famous in that way, unless it's something that has happened by by chance. Um, I think you need uh, a certain level of mm. confidence and um, self-belief yeah. that, <laughs> I, <laughs> that I lack. Well, as you say, <laughs> some have limelight thrust upon them. So who's to say what's going to happen? Yeah. I mean, you've got my vote for PM. <laughs> Although I think it was really interesting, you were telling me the other week that there's been a study that shows PM across the board is often, you can tell if someone's going to win by something called a pub test. Can you just quickly explain that? Because I've been trying to tell other people Mm -hmm. about it. And I think I'm doing that thing where you've heard something and you're just retelling it completely wrong. (laughs) So let's like set the record straight. As I understand it, the pub test is You've got a candidate mm-hmm. for Prime Minister, Boris, Keir, David Cameron back in the day, yeah. Tony Blair, people like that. Um, and 
they are so much more likely to be successful and become prime minister or win a general election if members of the certain members of the public who think in this way would be willing to go to the pub mm. with them for a drink um and i think it maps pretty well onto a lot of yeah. our previous prime ministers and candidates for prime minister where someone like Boris Johnson, lots of people would think, yeah, you know what, I could go to the pub with him. He's probably he'd a probably laugh. behave normally um, he, in a pub environment. He probably, yeah. Um, and then you think about other people like um, Theresa May or maybe Gordon Brown, who perhaps were really like, you know, they were very um, mm. conscientious when it came to governing and took the job very seriously. But members of the public uh, came to it and thought, you know what, I'm not sure they're yeah. normal enough. I don't think I can relate to them. I wouldn't want to go to the pub for a drink with them. They would probably bore yeah. me with some stats and facts about certain policies or they wouldn't actually want to drink very much or they wouldn't get around in yeah. or something like that. And And I think that really matters for a lot of people. And, you know, whether it should or shouldn't matter in that way, that, that's how people actually end up voting is is another question i think the problem is that the the the, 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 the fact of the matter is that people mm. do vote in that way so we have to yeah, take that into totally. account i think it's like in a way it makes perfect sense to me in another way it's just so tragically depressingly british <laughs> like it's just so fucking <laughs> yeah. british um on what you were talking yeah. about something that i did want to ask you is you spend all day at work with some of the most, you know, quote unquote, successful people. We're kind of talking about fame, but also they are at the height of success for their career. Um, And also people at all stages, like, I think many, many people would argue, you don't have to agree, that you're doing incredibly successfully at your age and stage of your career to be in the position that you're in, in Parliament. What has that done to your beliefs about what success means or like what a successful life looks like has it had an effect on that since you've started working there the thing is I've never really been hugely ambitious with my life or career I think I'm quite simple in some ways in what I want out of life and what I want out of a job as well I just want to be doing something that I really enjoy and something where I feel like I'm Mm. doing some good and I got when I got this job a few months ago, I guess just kind of three or so years into my working life, I think this is basically the point where I thought, well, this is the job where I could mm. ever be happiest. And this is the job where I feel like I'm doing the most yeah. good I could. So if anything, I feel like I have reached success in that way, even though I know lots of other people uh, would consider this job not particularly successful based on the fact that I don't get paid very much based on the fact that I don't have any kind of high profile Mm. at all Um, but I don't really have a huge desire for any of those things Um, so as I see myself now yeah I do think I have been successful in my job and that's a really nice feeling what I don't really know yet is where I Mm. where I go from here and I don't I just don't know what the future holds. I think at my old job, I would have, I might have thought, mm, you know what, I'd really like a job working as a comms officer for mm. a certain <laughs> MP. Um, and now I feel like I've 
done that. I'm, yeah, you I'm have. not sure where to <laughs> aim for. It's incredible. <laughs> it's so amazing. Um, yeah, but it's it is. You know, I I feel like I've only been in this job a few months, and so there are so many options still available. I think it could depend on a whole bunch of other things like family situations, where I'm living at the time. You know, I'm I'm quite open to lots mm. of other future change on stuff. Um, I just feel like I'm trying to enjoy the fact that I'm really loving my job now and I feel like everything's mm. going well um, and keep that going for as long yeah. as I can. I mean, thinking about it really, because I remember when you first told me that you were going to apply, we'd gone for like a very random last minute dinner in like the middle of London <laughs> and you told me that you were thinking about applying for it and in my head I was like, you are going to get this job. 100% like there was not a single doubt in my mind but I know that applying for jobs is pressure and it's not fun yeah. when people expect a lot of you or like that's been my experience because often people will say things to me like you're gonna be a star or whatever and then every time I write something or whatever and it's not mm. good I'm like fuck I'm failing yeah <laughs> I'm letting people down whereas I didn't I didn't want to put any pressure on you so I was like Will it just be such a great experience to apply? Yeah. Even just writing the application, I mean, if you got an interview, that would be huge. In my mind, I was like, he is getting this job. And it's just mad because you're right, like, this is kind of the peak of the mountain of someone's imagination in this sphere of industry. So I imagine mm. it must almost sometimes be difficult to just be like, okay, I am just here now and this is amazing and I'm just going to enjoy it because sometimes like getting an opportunity like that can be more of a big deal than the actual day-to-day -day living of the opportunity. Like people celebrate mm. getting a job in a way that they don't necessarily celebrate working a job when they actually have to go in every day. Yeah. Um. So I think it's great what you were just saying about actually trying to enjoy it. Do you feel good about not having the next step of a plan like are you the kind of person who needs a plan or are you just like let's just see and I like that anything could happen I'm not and that's the thing I think I'm enjoying my job so much more now because I don't feel like I'm thinking about the next step I think sometimes it can actually hold you back if you're constantly looking for the next mm. step because you're you're not actually just living in the moment and a job is, you know, it is it is work, but it's not work if it's really cliche, but it's, mm. it's not work if you're really enjoying it. I wouldn't know anything um, about that, but it sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if you can actually just appreciate what you're doing and enjoy that, um, I think there's so much pressure on us to continually feel like we have to be looking for the next, the next big thing or the next yeah. rung on the ladder. I think sometimes we can feel such a, a, so much pressure to mm. climb a ladder, especially at this age in your 20s where you feel like you're just starting out in your career and you're constantly thinking, you're looking at people's LinkedIn profiles and you see, oh, they've already been promoted to that or they've already moved into mm. this new field and uh, they've already um, started up this new thing. I haven't done any of that yet. There's so much competition mm. going on at this stage. I think sit back like take a step back and think what do you actually want out of your job that you spend eight hours a day five days a week doing and how can you get yourself into a job where you are enjoying that and mm. being happy and 
contributing whatever you want to contribute and earning what you want to earn. Um, and if you're doing all those things, then yeah, just this enjoy is very it. good advice. I haven't updated my LinkedIn for two and a half years, and someone actually messaged me on LinkedIn. <laughs> I have to log on to stalk uh, rich people because that's part of my job. Um, yeah. And I was stalking some rich people and. I saw that someone had messaged me like happy two years in a job that I left like <laughs> nine months ago. <laughs> so I really should update that. But um, uh, um, I what I was going to ask is, and this is becoming slightly less true in terms of people I know, but since we left university, um, you have been one of my only friends that consistently has actually really enjoyed their job. And I just wonder, is it ever awkward because what you've just been describing is that you feel pretty fulfilled basically by what you're doing. And I know that you were fulfilled before this role in your last role. Like, is it awkward to be more fulfilled than people around you and your friends? Like, does that ever kind of get uncomfortable or do you just think, oh, well, I'm having a good time? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, yeah, I'm really fulfilled in my uh, mm. job. Um, I think I'm probably less fulfilled <laughs> in my personal life. <laughs> I think there are some people who have a wonderful family around them and they're really fulfilled in their mm -hmm. family situation. Other people are not fulfilled in that way at all. Some people have loads of friends and they've got a really nice group of people they hang out with all the time. Other people don't have that. What's maybe a bit more unusual in my case is that I feel like a lot of people don't mm. feel fulfilled in their job in their 20s. I don't want to say they're not fulfilled because I think sometimes people are fulfilled right. and they don't realise it. But I think I do feel fulfilled in my job at this stage in my life. But it might be that they have settled down with a partner and they're living in a flat that they've bought together and their home life is mm. absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I wouldn't want people's job to occupy their entire yeah. 20s. I don't think that's healthy. Oh, well, I don't know, maybe it is for some people, but... Um, it's certainly not something well, I myself. in which case, let's get on to the other aspects of your life. <laughs> Done quite enough <laughs> the of the successful bit, part. thank you very much. Um, no, something that I think is one of the things that I really think about with how I've known you to change over the time that we've known each other from 18 to 25 is how much your kind of personal brand, I would say, has changed. And in a way, like, that's most obvious through how much your style has changed in the time that we know you. So when we met, um, you were wearing clothes bought exclusively by your mother. Um, lovely little feral jumpers that, you know, you'd see on a lovely bear at Christmas time. Um, and it was obviously adorable. And then almost incrementally like I don't really know when it fully happened but suddenly I'm coming to a party and you're wearing a mesh top with a chain and I just wanted to like ask you to maybe chat a bit more on that style change and exploring that and also using that as a means to explore your identities which is maybe something that quite a lot of people do in their teens when they have a rebellious phase or whatever I mean I started wearing really weird stuff from like age eight but that's because my parents are weirdos um but you know a lot of people kind of go through that phase or maybe go through that phase at the start of university and for you I really feel like that's come quite recently in your sort of early 20s basically yeah I think when I was at school I was quite mm. quite reserved on a lot of things I kept myself to myself um I worked really hard and I, I didn't I don't want to say mm. I was really pushed 
um, by my parents at home on my school things, but they were really supportive of me doing well at school. But I think I wasn't really pushed in being sociable and going out to things and carving out a personality and a brand, I guess, of myself. I just let it be formed by my mum, mm. basically, and how she thought a teenager <laughs> should <Yeah>. be. <laughs> um, and I didn't really pose any kind of challenge to that, I think, because I didn't really have any strong feelings at that point. I, you know, I spent a lot of time at home. I was quite settled at home. I didn't really see anything to, to question that. Um, and I didn't really go out enough to be exposed to different types of personality and brand mm. and style and things. And that only really, really happened after I got to uni because I was surrounded by loads of really mm. different people um, who expressed themselves in different ways and had so many facets to who they were. And I think I was quite shocked by that when mm. I first started uni. A lot of that changed as the course of the year went on and then definitely changed when I went to Russia mm. in my second year, where I actually had the time and space to think about who I was as a person and what I wanted that person to be. And I think that's kind of where I had my slightly more wild, rebellious phase and tried various things out and sort of carved out a personality of myself and who mm. I was and how I wanted to present myself and who I wanted to be watching. How was it coming back from <laughs> Russia? Because when I'm thinking about you in first year, I'm thinking about how much you, in seeking identity at uni and seeking to establish yourself, you really like pigeonhole people around you too. So when we would talk to you or talk about you, it would very much be like, oh, cute little jumpers and lovely brogues and such a sweet, like mm. nice boy and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that trope that I remember us talking about where it's like, oh, everyone's mum wants their daughter to marry you and all this kind of stuff, but not being able to be seen in, like, in other ways, in a cool way or a sexual way or all this other stuff. So I guess in a way it feels like it was really important that you got to go far away in order to escape that pigeonholing. But was it hard to come back both with your friends and then also obviously with your family when you're saying I don't want this jumper anymore yeah I I don't think it was hard with my friends because I think actually all my friends were really supportive and nice no one turned around and said oh well I liked how you were before and I don't like you <laughs> um, now. you're welcome I think it I don't think it was even a huge issue with my family but yeah they definitely noticed things and I think they were uh, or at least my mum, who I'm very close to, but has always had a lot of influence over my life and how what I've done with it, I guess. She was, I, I guess, sceptical, like any parent would be. Like They thought they knew who their mm. child was that they've reared for 18 years, and then suddenly they come back from a few months in another country and they look different and they act different and they might even speak, yeah. speak different. Um, uh, so that is, you know, that's something that I guess as a parent, you just have to accept. And I don't think she, at any point, she refused mm. to accept it. What's 
a relief about looking back at that phase of my life when I did sort of have my slightly mm-hmm. wilder phase is that I managed to do it in a discreet way and in another country yeah. away from most most people and managed to come back uh, to the UK and to uni um, in a more put together mm. way than I was a few months yeah. earlier. I mean, that um, sounds like it would be great. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of my last fine moments were on the floors of various clubs in Oxford. So I can't, I can't <laughs> say the same. Um, talking about that kind of shift though, over the last... 10 years so from being a teenager like in your mid-teens to now being in your mid-20s so halfway through the decade what do you feel like has changed about your personality or yourself or your life and what really hasn't? I think what has changed is like we've just been talking about like my personal brand how I am as a person like I'm a lot more I'm definitely more outgoing than I was I'm more I would say maybe more interesting <laughs> than I was. So savage um, to past you. <laughs> um, I think like I've I've come to in that again cliched phrase I've come to terms mm. with who I am and that like I came out in the past five years yeah. or so. But I think just generally I'm I'm still the the same person. And I still have the same beliefs, like inside I'm the same person. It's just I project a different version of myself to how I perhaps originally projected mm. myself yeah. 10 years ago. And do you feel more confident and better in the version that you're projecting now? Like, does it feel more authentic, that it's less reserved? I'm. It's not the personality or brand that others would have mm. wanted for me. It's something that I believe is me. And, you know, that takes a while to mm. fine-tune that and to narrow that down. And I think that's an yeah. ongoing process to suggest that I'm some finished article now is not true at all. But, you know, that's something that you change all the time as yeah. your environments change. Um, but I think the person I am now is definitely someone who I feel like more accurately ref- reflects the person yeah. on the inside. Is there something that you had to do to allow that to happen or is it just time like is it hard to put a finger on it's hard to say really I think um I think you have to take into account the various forces I'm not sure mm. forces is the right word who are yeah. influencing you um for me it was my parents but it was also my school and then it was uh and I think you have to see them in the whole and acknowledge that they're all part of mm. your existence. Yeah, I don't know. I think I think you also just have to take a step back from all of that and think about you as a person and what yeah. are your values and how can you reflect what is on the inside of you uh, mm. on the outside? Reflect. Yeah. Has it ever felt scary are. to do that? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a sense that I definitely felt like when I was going through this big transition in my life, I guess, um, it was scary because it feels like you're relinquishing a Mm. past version of yourself in a way. But actually you're not, you're just adding more to who you are. And we're always doing that. That's, Um, yeah, that's such a good way to look at it. It's scary, but... Yeah. Um, Yeah. Kind of on what you were just saying about relinquishing a past version of yourself, I feel like 
there's a huge deal made about your 20s as this like all important decade where you're supposed to become yourself and then be yourself from that point onwards um do you Mm. feel like yourself now in like this present moment yeah I do feel like myself I think what I find scariest about my 20s is the fact that my 20s will (laughs) soon be over um and I think that maybe it's I don't yeah I don't know what I guess everyone has it to a certain extent they feel like time's just ticking on but I definitely have that sense of you know you're never going to get your 20s again I should be seizing more opportunities than I am I should be you know living living life to the fullest Mm. at this point when I can and and yet actually I I know that what I am doing in my life is I'm just living really comfortably (laughs) and I feel in this constant dilemma where I'm like I'm living really comfortably and really enjoying myself but should I be seizing mm. the moment more and doing more things and pushing pushing myself more in this moment in my 20s when I can do these things? For me, it's less a case of, you know, oh, are you getting the most out of it? It's more what happens yeah. when it's over. <laughs> um, that's the what I... Um, find I think what's really on. interesting is you just talked about kind of like wanting to seize the opportunity that you're not going to get your 20s again. And you said the same thing earlier when you were talking about your year abroad, like you said that the mindset shift at that moment where you started to enjoy being out of your comfort mm. zone was like, I'm never going to have this year abroad again. But what I think is that's not necessarily, it doesn't need to be true that you're never going to have a year abroad again. And do you ever think about that mm. life in that way of that was a huge like turning point for you and obviously achieved so much for your personal growth? Like, would you recommend people to just, like, stop and take a year abroad? And would you do that outside of, like, a university setting? Like, after this job, would you be like, right, fuck it, I'm going to go to France or I'm going to go somewhere French or Russian speaking or somewhere not French or Russian speaking? Yeah, I think definitely. I think that's something that to... uh, a while back, I was maybe more conventional a lot of things, and I thought, well, this is the set route to live your life. And actually, there's there's no such thing as a nuclear family anymore. There's no such thing as a, um, a sort of set mm. career path for you. Well, I mean, they exist, but I think so few people actually end mm. up living their lives like that. Um, that actually, you have so much autonomy mm. over what you do and the way that you want to live your life, and that's the way it should be. And if it feels something like that feels right at, at that moment, then you should absolutely seize that. Um, for me personally, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that, maybe I will feel like that at some point. I, I don't know, but I would never rule it out. And I think it would be, I think it's a shame if people just think, oh, I should stick to this set route, or oh, well, I, I need to keep mm. on climbing the ladder so that I can get to this position by this time. Um, I think there are so many opportunities for a lot of people these days. They should just take what what comes to them and what feels right at that moment. And your 20s in in particular, now's the time to explore things. But then if that doesn't happen now, what's to say that you can't do it when you're 48 or when you're 72? Hopefully society will change and progress in a way which means that as many people as possible are able to get those Mm. opportunities rather than being preserved for the few who've managed to make it into a 
stable and well-paid enough job that gives them the opportunity to do that. Well, um, when you're running the country, <laughs> that's maybe it's not going to be a problem anymore. <laughs> Brexit, you know, reverse <laughs> first policy. <laughs> um, that's amazing, and like, yeah, thank you so much. That's also completely validated my upcoming move to Berlin. So I super appreciate that one from you. Thanks, mate. Um, <laughs> and just in general, this has been so, so interesting for me, and I feel like. Yeah, I'm going to have to re-listen to this and like really make some notes because a lot of what you're saying is exactly what how I want to be feeling. So if you had any advice, because some people who are listening to this might be really interested in politics, they might be interested in activism, they might be interested in comms. Um, like, do you have any advice for people who would want to do sort of campaigning jobs that you've done or get into politics or get into being a comms officer? Like, I know there's not a traditional route, but what would you say to people basically? I think just go along to a party political meeting of a party that you support or uh, read a book by at an early, even earlier stage, read a book by a politician that you're interested in or even go along to a meeting or read something that you would mm. disagree with and you would think, oh, actually, I'm not, um, I don't come from that perspective at all because I think all that understanding and knowledge that you will gain from exposing yourself to different opinions will serve you really well for any kind of future career in politics or campaigning, especially especially for campaigning, even if it's not explicitly political campaigning, if you're campaigning on a really particular issue like LGBT rights or um, homelessness or something like that, you really need to understand where mm. other people are coming from. If you have your head around that, you will campaign so much more effectively because you'll be aware of those yeah. other perspectives. Yeah. I that makes total sense. I, I think that's a really good, like, clear starting point where someone could actually go, like, do some of that stuff to start getting more more in, in involved. Um, great. That is all that I want to grill you with cool. for today. Um, but hopefully I'll see you in person soon for more off-air grilling. Um, <laughs> 